I am really been grateful for this intentional worship series personally because I think a lot of this is speaking to my own heart. I think that God is calling his people to live a lifestyle of worship and that begins by understanding who God is and becoming preoccupied with that status of God. God is great and it should just at times kind of sit us down that we go, wow, God is so great. And then last week we talked about how compassionate God is. His compassions are new every morning. I just am amazed at, at that God's mercy to us. And this morning we're going to get into this topic matter of faithfulness. The more God becomes our hero, the easier it is for us to adore him and to show him reverence. Amen? And so what we're trying to do in this series is not so much tell you to be an intentional worshiper. We're, we're, we're trying to tell you to begin to really know who God is and let him become your hero. Let him become what preoccupies you. And then everything else will seem to find its place. Have you ever become so engrossed with something that you forget what's going on around you? Anybody ever do that? I do that all the time. One way I do that is to watch the Minnesota Vikings play the Green Bay Packers which was on last week. And for that couple of hours, I'm gone. You could say anything you want to me. I'm watching that game. I'm going to go, no, 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 don't talk, don't talk, don't talk, don't talk. Because I'm engrossed in the game. I want to know what the outcome's going to be. As I've said in the past, I'm unashamedly a Vikings fan. And if you're a Vikings fan, you have to have no shame at times. But at any rate, you know, even in, in, even in that kind of game, I'll take a tie, whatever, you know. But, but I'm engrossed in the game. I'm preoccupied with the game. So naturally, it has my full attention and my full uh, uh, loyalty at some times, which is not really, I shouldn't admit to that. But uh, if God becomes what preoccupies us like a football game, if we become preoccupied with his greatness and his compassion and his faithfulness, pretty soon other things don't get in there. You follow what I'm saying? They kind of bounce off you. And your mind stayed on the Lord Jesus Christ no matter what you're going through. And pretty soon your life becomes reflective of that and you begin to live entirely differently. That, my friends, is intentional worship. Amen? That's what God is calling you and I to actually experience. Our serious goal is simply this, that you see God as he truly is and become so preoccupied with this that you truly worship him in your heart and then, of course, it spills over into your lifestyle. Now, preoccupy means dominate or engross the mind of someone to the exclusion of other thought. And I, I really believe this is the secret to becoming the worshiper that God intends every single one of us to become, that we become preoccupied with who God is, that we get so engrossed with who he is, that we begin to ask this fundamental question, then how to bring glory to God and how I live. And as that becomes the way that we do our lives, we are entering into this realm of intentional worship. So this morning we're going to move on in Psalm 145. We've been in Psalm 145 now for a couple of weeks. We looked, first of all, using Psalm 145 at the greatness of God. And last week we looked at the compassion of God. This week as we continue on in Psalm 145, we're going to run right into the faithfulness of God. So we're going to read the scripture out loud together. We're going to read verses 13 through 16 of Psalm 145. So would you turn your attention to the screen behind me and please read this scripture out loud with me. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, 
and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand, satisfy the desires of every living thing. So we see from this part of Psalm 145 that God is faithful. It is who he is. He's faithful in his promises. He's so faithful that every living creature is a recipient of his faithfulness. That's what the psalmist is saying here. Now, faithfulness in our culture is not all that common. Would you agree with me? It really isn't. In fact, I think mistrust is on the rise. There's a general reluctance, and rightly so, for us not to take people at their word. Have you been the recipient of a scam, anybody? Anybody in here been the recipient of a scam? Lately, I've been targeted on several fronts by these scammers. And so I got a call a couple weeks ago on my phone. And you know, you're not really prepared for this. I, I just picked it up. Hello? And on the line is somebody saying that there is a federal warrant out for my arrest because I have not paid such and such a bill, and I need to take care of that right away. And on and on this goes, and they suck me right into it. And at the end, this lady says, and I wouldn't want to be you if you don't pay. I said, you just gave yourself away, click. There's no way a government official is going to say, I wouldn't want to be you if you don't pay. You know, and they did it with a slight accent. You know, so I'm going, that, that's a scammer. But they just kind of suck you in. Now, here's the problem I have going on in my life right now that's really proving to be a challenge for me. I am trying to age gracefully. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. There's this magnetic pole in our lives. Now, you young people, you experience this a little bit, but you have some really good days. Life is good, and you're really a happy person, and you treat everybody really well. And then you have what are called what? Bad days. And life's not so good, and you're kind of cranky. I think as you get older, the magnets get bigger. And one side wants to pull you over here. There's constant cynicism and crankiness. Amen? And the other side... You age well, and you go over here to the side of graciousness and, and, and you know, lovingness. And I kind of want to go this way, and so on purpose, I'm trying to think the best thing about people first. These scammers are making that really difficult. And so much of this is going on that it's really difficult not to have this hunk and magnet over here going, sucking me into it, you know what I mean? And I don't want to be the cynical person, but it's going on. I, I tell you what, if you call me and I don't know your number, I now just hang up. I'm sorry. I'm apologizing ahead of time if it's a legitimate need and you really need me. If you really need me, call the church and leave your name and phone number. But you know what? If I don't know numbers on my phone, are you there with me? Especially if I see them from certain places. And now I begin to just block them. You know, every time. And so that's kind of our culture. We have marriages where people don't trust each other. We have families that don't trust each other. You know, we have uh, no trust of leadership, whether it be corporate or, or, or politics, where there's this disregard now for leadership. Our, our country's basically divided in half. You got half thinking one way, half thinking another way, and neither side trusts each other. And if we had to characterize our culture right now, I'd call it a culture of mistrust. And then we come to God, and how has God been revealed to us in Psalm 145? trustworthy, faithful, and we just have to, have to deal with this and take this at its word and take this as being true of who God is. Like greatness and like compassion, trustworthiness, faithfulness is part of the very makeup of God. Amen? It is who he is. God will do what he says he will do. And more than just know about God's faithfulness, we need to begin to really experience it and step into it. 
Recently, I was reading uh, some stuff by Jonathan Edwards. He was a preacher in the 1700s and part of the first uh, Great Awakening. So he was kind of instrumental in the first Great Awakening uh, uh, in our country. And I like uh, an illustration of his. It's in reference to honey. There are two ways you can know honey, he says. One way is you can have other people tell you about the sweetness of honey. They can describe its texture to you. They can describe, you know, how, how gooey and good it really tastes. He said another way is to put it on your tongue and taste it for yourself and have that sensory experience. Now what he goes on to say is really you need to do both. You need to know about the great sweetness and gooey flavor of honey mentally and rationally, but there's nothing like what? Eating it. Now, if you don't like honey, I'm sorry. Just pretend it's something you do like, okay? Because I realize in any illustration, some of you are going to go, oh, honey, I don't like honey. But you get what I'm saying, right? And so then he goes on, Edwards, and says, there's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious, or we could say in the context of our series, there's a difference between having the opinion that God is great and compassionate and faithful and, and, and actually having experienced that God is holy and gracious, that God is great and compassionate and gracious. And, he, and, and we need to have it not only something that we mentally know and that we believe and that we've heard stories from others, but we need to be what? Tasting it ourselves. We need to be experiencing it ourselves. The Bible gives us an invitation. It says, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. It's an invitation to have a sensory experience with God, so to speak. To not only know about who God is, but to actually enter into that experience of a firsthand knowledge of, of the goodness of the Lord. And so what I want us to do today is be open and asking God to begin to stir within our hearts a sensory experience, so to speak. Not only that we know that God is faithful, but we taste that he's faithful. Amen? That we experience it firsthand that he's faithful. That we expect him to be faithful. That we just set our ways in a course where, where we're living life in such a way that we believe in the utter faithfulness of God. And when we begin to live like that, guess what? We become faithful. And I tell you what, a key element of worship is what? Imitation. And when we begin to imitate the faithfulness of God and step into having a faithful life ourselves of, of living that way, then we're entering into worship. So what I want to do for a few moments with you is just give you some verses that are really come and taste and see that the Lord is good verses. Dealing with the topic matter of greatness, compassion, and faithfulness. So listen to these scriptures from Psalms and soak them in. Ruminate on them a little bit. Just meditate on them even as I'm reading them to you. Listen to Psalm 5710. It says this, For great is your love, reaching to the heavens, your faithfulness reaches to the skies. So when we start thinking about God's faithfulness, we have to think big and high. It reaches to the skies. Then going on to Psalm 8615, we're told this, But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Not only does his faithfulness reach to the sky, it's something that's abounding. It is without measurement. Going on to Psalm 92, verses 1 through 2. It is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High, proclaiming your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. His faithfulness should just be on our minds, brothers and sisters in Christ. 
It should just be there all the time. We should be meditating and ruminating on the faithfulness of God. And then let's go to Psalm 100, verses 4 through 5. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues to all generations. Now, let's go right on to the next scripture, Psalm 117, verse 1 through 2, because it gets at what it means that his love, that his faithfulness continues to all generations. Praise the Lord. All you nations, extol him, all you people, for great is his love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. So not only does his faithfulness reach to the heavens, not only does it abound, but what? It endures forever. And then we get to Lamentations 3, verses 22-24. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. I can hardly get past that when I read this. It just strikes me. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait on him. So when it comes to the Lord's faithfulness, words and phrases like, reach it to the sky, abounding, enduring forever, you know, and great auto, describe it to you and me. Amen? That's what ought to pop into our minds. That's what we ought to think when we think of the Lord's faithfulness. It is how we're to see his faithfulness. Think about this idea of faithfulness with me just for a moment. Think about this. Meditate on this idea. What are the implications to you individually that God is faithful? What does that mean to you in your walk in Christ? What does it mean that God is utterly trustworthy, that he will do what he has promised? How will that affect the way that you live your Christianity? What does it mean that God is truly sovereign and in control? What does that mean to you as a follower of Christ? What does it mean when Jesus says, I will come back again, and even now, though I go to the Father, I prepare a place for you, that he's making ready for you and me a home in heaven? That even now, that's what's occupying the Lord Jesus' time. But what does that mean to you and I as followers on earth now? How does that affect the way that you do your life and what your priorities are? Think about how differently you would live your life if you truly believe in the faithfulness of God. Our big thought this morning is this. The Lord is faithful. The word faithful means consistent, loyal, It's a quality, a stability. I I love the word dependability. Faithful means dependability. He can be counted on. It means devotion. I love this definition. Long continued and steadfast fidelity to whatever one is bound to by a pledge, a duty, or obligation. In other words, when God says, I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. Here's the big implication that God is faithful. When we worship God, Let me start again. We worship God as we anchor our lives on his faithfulness. So if we really think God is faithful and we anchor our lives on that faithfulness and we become one to faithfully follow our faithful God, imitating who he is, and imitation is key to being a worshiper of God, then nothing should sway us from conviction that God will do what he says he will do. All right? And so when we are willing to anchor our lives on his faithfulness where nothing sways us, from the conviction that God says he'll do what we, he'll do, that means we have entered into the realm of worship, okay? 
that we are following God as an intentional worshiper. You know what I found fascinating when I look at faithfulness? It's all over the Bible. It's a constant revelation that God has given to you and I for astute and we kind of look for it. All the covenants that God made uh, in the Bible really deal with his faithfulness. Do you realize that? That he will do what he says he will do. And I want to give you a couple examples of this, but I, what I want you to see is that this faithfulness thing of God is not just something he declares in some psalms. It is something that he has illustrated to you and I through a whole story of the Bible. So let's talk about the Abrahamic covenant first of all. Let's talk about that one. Uh, we have to go all the way back to Genesis for this. Genesis begins with the creation story. Do you remember that? And then right away in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin. And there's a falling out from God. And, and they hide from God when he comes to visit them in the cool of the day because they had sinned. And mankind has been hiding from God ever since sin entered into that relationship. Uh, that's been the standard approach of mankind who do not know Jesus. It's a hide, hide from God. Right away on, the, on, on, on that moment of destruction, that moment that caused so much despair and so much disappointment in the human condition, God gives us a message of hope. He says this to, to Adam and Eve, basically, um, that the offspring of Eve would crush the serpent's head. In other words, God is saying, at the moment, it looks like you've been defeated by the devil. But time is coming when one of your offspring will crush his head, will take away his control over you. Well, then we begin to, so we see this as a hope, right? Do you see this as a promise of God? Do you see that? God said this is going to happen. And the, the, the story of redemption begins in Genesis chapter 3. Do you realize that? The story of God's reconciling mankind, following mankind back to himself, begins in Genesis chapter 3 of the Bible. Chapters 1 and 2, by the way, are in creation. It's, a, it's an amazing, it's an amazing thing to know. So then we get to Genesis 12, and we read about the Abrahamic covenant and, and God's plan of how it's going to redeem mankind begins to become a little bit more revealed to us. And, and God says that through the offspring of Abraham, all people will be blessed. And that's a direct reference, by the way, to Jesus Christ, that through the offspring of Abraham, all people will be blessed. So in Genesis 3, God gives us hope right, in the, right after the fall that he's going to do something that... that that will turn this thing around, this, the fall of mankind. And then in Genesis chapter 12, we see he gives a specific promise to Abraham. Your offspring is going to be the one through whom all people is blessed. Then we get to Matthew chapter 1. Now that's the beginning of the New Testament, right? What's the very first thing that we read about in Matthew chapter 1? The genealogy of Jesus Christ. Where does it begin? With Abraham. Starts with Abraham, goes to another significant character, David, King David, and then goes to Jesus. So why, why is that there? Well, partly because that's what gives credibility to a Jewish reader, and Matthew's kind of directed towards the Jewish readers. But for all of us, basically, it's the continuation of the story that began in Genesis 3 that was made a little bit more clear in Genesis 12. Now we get to Matthew 1, and we go, oh, here's Jesus, that offspring of Eve that's going to crush the serpent's head, the offspring of Abraham that's going to bless all people. And then right after the genealogy is given to Jesus, what's the next thing talked about in Matthew 1? The birth of Jesus Christ. 
It all goes together. There's one story of redemption. Now, you've seen this in the Bible, and it's all about God's faithfulness. And then we get over to Hebrews chapter 1, and now we're just clearly told this in the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he inherited is superior to theirs. So here you go. You got the story unfolding. Starts in Genesis 3. Okay, Adam and Eve, you sinned. But humankind is not without hope. Your offspring's going to crush the serpent's head. Abraham, and this is Abrahamic covenant. Your offspring's going to bless all people. Matthew, chapter 1, genealogy. Abraham, Jesus. Hebrews, chapter 1. Now let me tell you about who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. Now as cool as all that is, what it's really illustrating to you and I is the faithfulness of God. Amen? The Bible's one story. It's a story of redemption. It's God's plan. And what we see about God is if he makes a plan, he works the plan. Amen? He's faithful. And no matter how many scam calls you get, how many broken relationships you've experienced, how many times people have let you down, how many times your boss has misrepresented something to you, how many times you know something's been wrecked because someone said something they didn't do, you cannot transfer uh, that onto who God is. God is utterly faithful. Amen? Amen? Amen, he is. Well, let's talk about the Davidic covenant because it's kind of containing what I already talked to you about. In, let's see, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, God promises this to David. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. He says this to King David. Now, is that just a platitude given to a king? I don't think so. When God says something, he actually means it. Amen? And we know that David died, so it can't be that David's going to live forever and that's going to establish his throne forever. And what God was saying is basically... Through your offspring, your throne will be established forever. And elsewhere, as we read Scripture, we see that God will come back to this promise every now and then. I don't know how much you know about the history of Israel. Let me give you a short recap. So, Israel's born, and under the leadership of Moses, you know, they, they go and, and get established. And then they have the first king, Saul. He doesn't work out. Second king, David, he works out really well. And, and under David, the Israel as a nation begins to thrive, and under Solomon, really thrive. But after that, the story of Israel is one of ups and downs of godly kings and ungodly kings, and ungodly kings being more the normative. And down the road, the nation of Israel splits into two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is still called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. Now, in Judah is Jerusalem. That's the city of David. And God has a special place in his heart for David. He's made a promise. You're, you're, you're gonna, you're, your throne will be established forever. And at one point, even when things are not going well for little Judah and they have an ungodly king, God says this in 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 19. Nevertheless, for the sake of his servant David. We're still talking about David here. The Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. He had promised to maintain a lap for David and his descendants forever. So we see that promise of God still there, still kind of percolating. Well, then what do we read about in John chapter 1? 
In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and you know that's Jesus, right? And He is the what? Light of the world. He is the lamp for David. He is the promised descendant of David that would establish his kingdom forever. And we see that covenant come to fruition. What should we say? Wow, God, you are faithful. Amen? We should say, wow, God, you are faithful. What you say, you do. Let's talk about one more covenant, and I'm done. I'm just trying to overwhelm you with this, I think in a positive way. Let's talk about the Noahic covenant. So, once again, we go to Genesis chapter 6, and we meet Noah, a righteous man. He's living among a really unrighteous culture. And God decides at that moment, I'm going to basically wipe out the human race. But Noah, you and your family, I'm going to save through the ark. And so God sent a flood for, uh, for 40 days and 40 nights, and the whole earth is flooded. And for 150 days, this goes on. But Noah and his family are saved in this ark. I'm, not, I'm really, really summarizing this, okay? But here's the point I want to get to. As the flood began to recede, we read in Genesis 8, verses 21 through 22 this. God says, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures, as I've done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. And then when we go on into Genesis 9, that the Noetic covenant is further detailed out, where God says, I'm going to establish my covenant with you, a binding agreement that I will not change. Never again will there be a, a flood to destroy the earth. As a sign of this covenant, God said, I'm going to set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. The rainbow will be a reminder that never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. This was the covenant that God established between himself and all life on the earth. Now, I don't know about you, but I like to watch science fi movies. Any of you like to watch those? And there's always a constant theme in, in several of these. A big meteorite's going to hit the earth and destroy the whole earth. I don't really worry about that. Do you worry about that? Because God has promised, until the return of Jesus Christ, we're going to have seasons. Amen? Seed time. Amen? He's never again going to let the earth undergo worldwide destruction. Now, there's going to be hurricanes and earthquakes and localized floods. I'm not saying there's not going to be disasters, but God has promised that the earth would not be destroyed, that it would not be destroyed by waters anyway, okay? Can we say amen to that? Do you, do you ever, so you, can, so you can enjoy your science fiction movies, okay? You don't have to worry about that's actually going to happen. It's not going to happen because God said that's not going to happen. Now, I could talk about a whole bunch of scientific stuff, and I have two pages on that that, that, that I think are go along with that, but that's with the flood and the validity of the flood that, and all that kind of stuff. I don't have time. So now I just made you, yeah, I just did a really nasty thing to you, didn't I? All right. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. I love this summary about what the faithfulness of God did to Abraham, David, and Noah. It says this, all these people, Abraham, David and Noah were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Abraham trusted God's faithfulness that his descendant would bless all humanity. David trusted that God would set up his throne forever. Noah trusted God that the earth would never again undergo a worldwide flood. They all died 
trusting God. They were faithful. You see, that's worship, my friends. When we really run into the faithfulness of God and we really become preoccupied with the faithfulness of God and we acknowledge that's who he is and we begin to experience that's who he is and we begin to respond by living faithful lives, we are now entering into the realm of worship. And we become like Abraham and David and Noah. We'll be known as faithful ones following after God. They knew the faithfulness of God in their minds, but in their lives, they had sensed it and lived it. They had tasted that the Lord was good. Amen? And they lived it out, and they lived these faithful lives. So here's our challenge this morning. Will you see your life, your individual life, as a furtherance of God's story of faithfulness? So I would challenge you this way. Say it again. See your lives as a furtherance of the story of God's faithfulness. Do you see your life that way? I know. I know this is hard at times. I feel the magnetic pull of cynicism in my own life. I know that as I get older and older, it's easy to get cranky and get over here and just say, oh, you know, I've been burned 1,800 times. I'm not going to trust anybody. You know, I've been, had all these people make broken promises to me and you transfer all that to God. You just cannot do that. You have to let the magnetic pull over here grab a hold of your heart and say, I choose to believe God that you're faithful. I'm going to choose to live the best story out for my life that I can. I'm going to choose to believe the best about other people first and foremost, not the worst about them first and foremost, amen. And I'm going to choose to be over here living in the land of faithfulness because you are a faithful God. And as you do that, you're going to taste that God is good. And you're going to taste his faithfulness. And more than it just being a, a, a kind of a mental exercise, it's going to be a, something that you actually experience. So here's an exercise for you this week. I'll leave you with one exercise. Whatever you are facing this week, do so standing on a promise of God that applies to that situation. So if you're facing some tough things, if you're facing a challenge, whatever you're facing, maybe it's a good thing. How do I make a decision to go into this career or that career? Or, or, or maybe, you know, you're facing the challenge of getting married or something really, they don't have to be necessarily bad. Whatever you're facing, what promise of God applies to that? What are you to stand on? What thing is God saying here this needs to be percolating in your mind as you think about this situation God is faithful and he calls you and I to be faithful amen and no matter what we're facing we need to stand on the promises of God and as we do so then we're living a life of intentional worship amen that's how we really worship God when we will take him at his word and we actually live it out and I tell you what I don't know if you like honey I like honey a lot I could just scoop it out of there and actually drink it, which nobody really wants to see. And I really, really don't do that because you just don't need that much sugar. But it's gooey goodness is something to be experienced, not just to be looked at. And I, I often think of this invitation by God. Come and taste and see that I'm good. It's like we get down at the table sometimes and we think, you know, God, just believing about you is enough. Hearing about you is enough. And he's saying, would you pick up the spoon and eat? And I want to encourage you today. Don't just know about God's faithfulness. Reside in that. Let it affect how you do life. Taste it. In situations that seem hopeless, don't we serve a hopeful God? 
when you seem to be overwhelmed by discouragement, isn't our God one who brings encouragement? Start stepping into these things that God has provided. And if you can't do it at the moment, grab somebody that loves you, that knows you, that will pray for your soul to receive the good gifts of God and to receive the fact that God is faithful even if you don't think he's faithful at the moment. Amen? But don't reside in a place where you ever think God's not faithful and God's not trustworthy. Come and see and taste that the Lord, he is good. Let's pray. Lord God, I want to thank you for today and for this Psalm 145 of David's as it continues to unfold for us attribute after attribute of who you are. And faithfulness, God, is just who you are. So much of the world today has created in us, I think, cynicism, Lord. And we don't trust anyone. It's easy to get into that kind of mindset, Lord. All the scams going on, all the broken promises that are made and all the rhetoric that we hear, Lord, that they become so empty and hollow after a while. So today, Lord, would you grace us as your people here at Grace Point to really embrace your faithfulness. But more than just embracing it as a belief system, I pray that you grace us to experience it, Lord, and for us to expect it and to live our lives that way. And I pray that we live in response to your faithfulness, Lord, faithful lives. And to me, that's worship because we're imitating you, God. You're so faithful, and if we're faithful to you, that's showing you adoration and reverence. So we praise you today, our faithful, trustworthy God. Pray all these things in your name and through the blood of Jesus and all God's people said,